All right, everybody, it's it's Dave Fitch here, Theology on Mission podcast with Mike Moore. Still no snow in Chicago, uh, but uh, Mike Moore is listening to Christmas music mm. on his radio when he drives in and to and from Northern. Yeah, Sunday. yeah, Confessions of a Low Church Kid right here. Yeah, and so uh, evidently, uh, you, but didn't you start doing that before Thanksgiving? Isn't that the uh, what you did? I. I, I do think the date is like the day after Thanksgiving is when you can start listening. But we have not uh, procured a Christmas tree yet, though. So that's next on the oh, list. Oh, dude, dude. Uh, what, what, what is the appropriate time to set up the Christmas tree? Is it uh, the day before Thanksgiving, the day after Thanksgiving? Uh, I, I prefer <laughs> the week before Thanksgiving. Uh, I got uh, totally rebelled against in my family. Uh, what about you? Uh, December 24th is when we go get the Christmas tree. It's really, really late <laughs> um, because cause we're cheap and you can get them half off on December 24th. Uh, so, folks, uh, welcome to the Theology on Mission podcast, the place where theology engages the issues of culture for his kingdom, for his mission. Uh, Mike Moore, we have a special guest today with us, and I can I can hardly wait, uh, and, and Caitlin... Caitlin uh, has we, we've gotten to know each other in other spaces, but I think this is the first time we've ever uh, been on a radio show together, if you can call it a radio show. But this is Caitlin Beatty, writer, journalist, editor, keen observer of trends. Now, I'm reading off her book, but uh, really this doesn't do uh, many of her talents and abilities justice because she's a journalist. She's written for The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The Religious News Service. She's been on CNN, ABC, NPR. Um, you could say, Mike Moore, she's quite a celebrity. Would you say that, oh, Mike man. Moore? Yeah, you are setting her up really well. <laughs> and uh, we're grateful to have, yes. hopefully, uh, I didn't stumble on that intro. Hopefully, I didn't say the wrong thing. She's no, it was perfect. Perfect, except for the celebrity part, which we'll get to. <laughs> well, well, that's what I was kind of going for a zinger on. Uh, she's written a book, Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. Great to have you on the podcast, Caitlin. Caitlin. And she also works for this place called Brazos Press and, and, and uh, Baker Publishing, which I have some relationships to. So it's good to connect. Um, Caitlin, let's start out with the, uh, with I think one of the important kind of foundations of the book. Um, what is celebrity? Uh, you say social power without proximity. Now, there's a podcast all on its own right there, uh, social power without proximity. You want to explain to us a little bit about mm -hmm. um, that? Yeah. So I distinguish in the book celebrity from fame in every time and place there have been people who's you know in ancient times military conquests family lineage accomplishments creativity have taken their name beyond a specific time and place and it's not the thing being sought but a certain kind of renown comes as a result of their work in the world and I tend to think of this kind of fame as morally neutral. You know, if it happens to you as a Christian, then you have to determine, well, how do I steward this well? Um, how do I keep the main thing the main thing and not let this become something more insidious and soul-destroying? Celebrity, by contrast, is a distinctly modern phenomenon, in large part because it 
relies on the tools of mass media to project an image of oneself or a persona or a personal brand, (laughs) so to speak, that is impressive, that attracts fans, adoration. And with this, of course, comes a kind of distance. You know, it's, it's the ability to shape hearts and minds or to captivate an audience or a group of fans but from the distance of the stage or the screen and in that distance and in the lack of proximate knowledge of a particular person or leader comes all sorts of temptations that we have seen in the headlines, you know, in recent years and that I think we will continue to see until we can really get to the significance of proximity for, for all Christian leaders. Yeah. And um, so you're talking about the way... Uh, celebrity malforms a person, mm-hmm. his or her leadership. Um, I, so I think you said this. I got it in my notes anyway, so I'm pretty sure you wrote this. But I mean, this may be my paraphrase. But um, the difference between fame and celebrity is um, one is kind of received. Fame is kind of received, and you gotta, like you just said, steward it well. The other is kind of sought after. It's kind of mm-hmm. pursued and. Mm-hmm. Mike Moore, every time I find myself, and believe it or not, I still find myself doing this, uh, pursuing platform mm-hmm. or pursuing fame, or or maybe I'm feeling jealous. Why does that person have the platform and I don't? Or, oh, hey, oh, every time I find myself doing that, I, I feel this massive mal, something very seriously wrong going on in my being can you can you connect to that mike moore i I know you're always out there chasing fame (laughs) oh um i i think i be honest yeah i i connect with it probably (laughs) on a smaller scale like i i feel that i don't really have much anything i feel that that is that significant to say on social media that would draw a following but I think that the celebrity culture can take place on a really small scale. So I, I felt that in my churches of 50 to 100 people, I feel like the energy that happens when you like get ready to preach or when you walk into a meeting and it feels like the room kind of tilts towards you. It's a celebrity culture that isn't operating on a, on a big scale. But here in my local setting, I, I kind of feel it sometimes. Yeah, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I know Mike Moore comes off as a humble guy, but uh, everywhere I go in Chicago, this guy knows somebody. This gets back to the issue of celebrity, how it poisons the soul. Yeah. That's not that's not Caitlin's words. That's my words. It poisons the soul, and it's got to be resisted. Uh, but Caitlin, could you comment a little bit more about that riff I was going on where, where there's this inner... You, you find yourself pursuing celebrity mm-hmm. as opposed to just receiving mm-hmm. fame or platform as mm-hmm. something. Uh, and it's a different relationship. It's a yeah. different sense of self. Could you comment a little bit on it? Yeah. So I have the philosophical framework and then I'll offer the personal framework. The, phil- the philosophical framework comes from Alistair McIntyre, Catholic moral philosopher. He talks about internal versus external goods, uh, internal goods being kind of the the primary core uh, good 
thing that we're pursuing, external goods being the resultant goods that might come kind of tangentially or in effect. And so if you're a writer or a theologian, the internal good might be something like wanting to write and teach in a way that edifies the church. Let's just leave it at that. Yes, there are methods you use to communicate, to connect, but the the internal good is to edify the church. The external good might be speaking engagements, uh, honorariums, book deals, uh, getting to speak at AARSBL or ETS or wherever it is that your peers and place where you want to be respected and uh, kind of publicly renowned. What happens that is destructive is when the two become flipped, right? Mm -hmm. When the external goods actually become the driving motivator and become confused as the reason why you're doing the things you're doing and you lose sight of the original good thing that you want to offer to the world. Um, And this, I mean, I, so getting to the personal reflection on this, even in, sharing a book about the problems of celebrity in the church and the corrosive nature of things like platforms and self-promotion, I had to play that game to an extent to get the word out about this book because that is the nature of book publishing and how awfully ironic and terrible would it be if in the course of trying to share this, what I think is a helpful book with the world, I became fixated on numbers, platform, how is my book performing compared with somebody else's. So it's it's easy to get those confused. And I think it's easy because behind the desire for some kind of celebrity is often a, a desire or need to feel secure in our identity and our importance to be well-liked, to be known or to to have a sense of accomplishment or purpose. So I think there are deeper spiritual issues and questions that often drive an an undue need for celebrity power. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I find, uh, and, you know, Mike, I want to ask you about this too, but I I find uh, people, uh, I am at such a stage with social media in particular, where you I know you can read and feel when someone is trying too hard to be famous. <laughs> who's trying too like hard? Like who? Do you have any uh, names in mind? Uh, we'll, we'll stay away from that, or else I'll get, yeah, can, I'll get bleeped uh, by Mike Moore, and he'll edit it out. And I wouldn't do it anyways. But, but the point is, um, the sooner you can become secure in who you are. Mm-hmm. In your calling as a person in a place and a vocation or ministry or location, the better you will be at mm-hmm. uh, building a platform. Because I think people are smelling out platforms left and right these days and just don't want that anymore. Mm-hmm. I think it's reached mm-hmm. a crisis point. Do you agree with me, Mike Moore? Or, or you're, you're sitting there in a very pensive look, which has got me wondering, what is he thinking? Wouldn't about? you agree with him? Yeah. Mike? yeah. That's, that's <laughs> an open-ended question that we want to ask you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I have two options. Yes or no. I'm thinking about a couple of Twitter threads I've, I've witnessed go down the toilet and how entertaining it is to watch mm-hmm. Christian celebrities 
get into the ring and just duke it out with each other. Like it's, Mm -hmm. this is so sad, but I find it so intoxicating. I also find it really, really discouraging because I think it distracts from, Mm -hmm. from the compassion and intention that God calls us to give the world. So mm-hmm. I can get on Twitter and I can see all these celebrities going back and forth, back and forth. And it seems really important to me, but I do think by and large, the rest of the world really does not care or is not interested in our echo chambers. Yeah. One of the first uh, flame emojis to have been sent out into the Twitter space was John Piper, essentially what we would now say he would he was canceling Rob Bell for his writing about right. hell. Um, there's something about, there's something about seeing that they're human too mm-hmm. <laughs> and that they lose their cool. There's something about having that peeled back. And then there's also a little bit of schadenfreude, especially if it's Christian celebrities, you don't particularly uh, relate to or like, or have an affinity for like, uh, I don't, I'm not saying this is bringing out good, qualities in us but i think it is um i think it's very common i do i i will say my sense just anecdotally from speaking with friends and colleagues is i think the internet debate culture feels really tired and maybe as you were saying david we have a pretty jaded view of platforms these days and can kind of sniff out when someone's just trying too hard and they just like want it too badly. So I, I internet culture feels very tired to me right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Fatiguing. I just, I just find it that way. And I know I feel it. Uh, it's so different than even, even a year ago. It's definitely different than three or four years ago. Ladies and gentlemen, we are uh, with Caitlin Beatty uh, who has written a book, celebrities for Jesus, how personas, platforms, prophets are hurting the church. Such a timely and important discussion. We want to move further into the substance of the book. Um, and, and this is a particular uh, area that I'm uh, deeply uh, interested in, committed to, have written on. Uh, you connect the rise of celebrity culture to the lack of ecclesiology. Ecclesiology being that seminary word we use to th- to talk about what the mm-hmm. church is and what it means. And, and you kind of trace it. Uh, you kind of trace this phenomena of, of a lack of ecclesia, a lack of the, the sense that the church, the body of Christ, this, this place of proximity, hopefully, that we all learn about ourselves and, and grow to know who we are, that that got lost by evangelicals. And that has contributed to the rise of celebrity as the means around which we gather. You want to comment on that wonderful history? You, By the way, folks, again, the book is Celebrities for Jesus. Caitlin Beatty, uh, we're highly recommending it. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, I will try to summarize all of evangelical history and ecclesiology in the next 30 <laughs> seconds. And of course, you know, I only spend And, and we know you can do that, by the way. We have seen you do it before. So go. I devote a chapter in the book to what I call the first evangelical celebrities, essentially, you know, Dwight L. Moody, Billy Sunday, and Billy Graham as charismatic uh, speakers and figures who came to 
solidify evangelical identity in the 19th and 20th centuries far more than any given institution, uh, transdenominational body. Of course, Graham was, to his credit, invested and involved in several institutions over the years. You know, I, I worked at Christianity Today for several years, and he was key in helping to found the magazine. He was trying, I think, to his credit, to say that what was happening at his crusades or on his radio programs or televised crusades was not as central to the what was happening in any given local church wherever he was preaching or speaking. And of course, the BGEA tried to partner with local churches wherever they were traveling to to kind of direct attendees to the local church to say, you know, what happened here tonight? If you came to know the Lord was great, but also the warp and woof of Christian discipleship is going to happen in the local church, not in front of a screen, not listening to Graham's radio shows. So I think he was trying, but in general, the evangelical movement has not been able to resist the ascendancy of charismatic individuals and the decline of institutions in American life over the last 50 years. And in fact, we have simply, I say we, being someone who grew up in evangelicalism and is very much shaped by the movement, um, we have not been able to resist the rise of charismatic and oftentimes unhealthy or brash leaders to guide our movement, but also to kind of understand ourselves. Um, And I I talk in the book about kind of the after effects when you have one of those leaders fall or face scandal of some sort, whatever is left of the institution has a really hard time disentangling its own identity from the identity of the charismatic leader. And we're seeing this play out at Willow Creek, Mm -hmm. at Hillsong, um, church churches and church networks that placed undue emphasis on charismatic leaders and figures, what is going to happen to local gatherings of these churches moving forward. I I don't actually know if Willow Creek is going to survive because it understood itself for decades to be Bill Hybels church. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we have this issue of of a uh, a vacuum in evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. I say we because I too have been mm-hmm. ambivalently an evangelical for my entire life. Um, by the way, Mike Moore, are you still an evangelical? Uh, I have not been part of an evangelical church for probably twenty years, but all of Caitlin's nineties nostalgic references in the book uh, <laughs> that that is part and parcel of my entire upbringing. So I feel a lot of affinity and, and I still, I I love evangelicalism in a lot of its ways. Yeah. And so, Mm -hmm. um, so this, this vacuum is filled, uh, you know, you know, people have to have a reason to gather. People have to have, Mm -hmm. um, there has to be a politic, meaning, a way of being a people. And if you don't have an ecclesiological core, mm-hmm. what you end up doing is gathering around a celebrity. And I think that's a, uh, an, a very big enlightening uh, piece of work you do in those chapters that reveal that. Mm-hmm. Now, um, 
let's Mike, are, are we ready to get to the solutions to the problem? Yeah, of yeah. Let's find it. <laughs> okay. Because we, we, we again need, in the but, next thirty seconds. Yeah. <laughs> we're That's just right. gonna put a bow on it. <laughs> oh, we can do this. Uh, uh, we, we can make this work. Uh, the first solution, uh, I'm going to summarize by saying, well, Christians should just eschew or resist or reject power, cultural power, because there's a sense of cultural power that comes with celebrity. Uh, and, and by the way, I'd also like to ask is is that all bad, the cultural power that comes with celebrity? Because I remember, you know, when Mike Singletary was a Christian and he was middle linebacker of the Bears, and I, I'm going, oh, all right. I might even <laughs> become a Bears fan now. Um, so uh, talk, talk a little bit about this eschewing power, mm-hmm. um, cultural power, the cultural power of celebrity. And is is cultural power all bad? So I don't know that we can eschew cultural power because we all have some measure of power. <laughs> you know, we we all, as as God's image bearers, we all have some sense of agency and ability to shape the world around us, to um, to create cultural goods, to <clears throat> shape institutions, to reflect the life of the kingdom, um, to minister to people in our midst. What I would love to see more evangelicals do is abandon the pursuit of cultural legitimacy according to the world's eyes. Um, I think in in many by many accounts, evangelicals of the last 40, 50 years have sought a kind of cultural ascendancy by either trying to become celebrities themselves in the world's eyes or at least aligning themselves with mainstream celebrities to kind of claim specific celebrities as one of our own. As a recent example of how badly this can go, I would mention Kanye West, who released a very gospel-oriented album several years ago called Jesus is King. A lot of white evangelicals were very excited about that, that, you know, this, this very powerful, prominent entertainer had apparently had a transforming encounter with Jesus I don't think there's anything wrong in kind of celebrating that from afar, but of course we can't really know <laughs> the inner life of of any kind of celebrity on that level. And then he's of course had significant public meltdown since then in a way that I would think would be a liability mm-hmm. for evangelicals to align with. Yeah. So that's just one example. Um, I think the important thing to remember is that we actually, again, going back to proximity and the need for proximity, you know, if we are attaching our hopes or our cultural aspirations onto people who we don't know and can't know because of the distance that celebrity creates, we are uh, we are doing something foolish. You know, if if we are looking for people to represent our faith well in the public square or in the court of public opinion, at the very least, it should be people we have a way of knowing and can, you know, a way of speaking to their integrity and character and honest pursuit of the Christian life. Hmm. Yeah. Um, there's a lot there uh, in what you said, and I think it is. I, I think everybody who's in ministry 
all men and women in ministry need to, uh, in these times, uh, especially because so much is driven by platforms. And I'm talking small churches, like church plants. Even. Mm-hmm. Uh, how big is your platform? How are you using your platform? And and I do, by the way, just FYI, I think platforms can play a significant role. I don't want to eschew Facebook, Twitter, other platforms, because there's there's ways of connecting with people that bring people together that can shape a body of believers in a context. But you got to be really careful and resist this this chasing of celebrity that turns into a poison into your soul. And uh, mm-hmm. part of that is uh, uh, the the uh, attraction to cultural power, which you just finished talking about. I, I think that's uh, so important. I, I've got a funny story. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's funny, but, um, uh, and, and don't mock me out there, ladies and gentlemen. And, and, Caitlin and Mike Moore, try to be kind with me. Yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll let you know. But, we'll let you know if it's funny. But uh, I've I've become a fan of Justin Bieber. <laughs> okay. Uh, the 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 holy the holy holy song. Oh, oh man, I love it, man. Oh, <laughs> and, okay. And so I put this, I put this on Facebook or something, and I started getting mocked all over the place. People were saying, "I got to cancel you for saying this." <laughs> it was the opposite of cultural power. Now, folks, that's a way. To rid yourself of celebrity, uh, <laughs> claim your allegiance to Justin Bieber. What do you have to say about that, Mike Moore? <laughs> yeah, well, th- that and uh, the fact that you love McDonald's coffee so much, I think those are both ways for you to relinquish some cultural power. Um, I'm, I'm interested. I uh, maybe turning back to to Caitlin. Uh, that that la- <laughs> last chapter of your. Oh, sorry, Dave. It, and it was a funny story, by the way. I wanted to hear what Caitlin <laughs> had to say about Justin Bieber. Oh, okay, okay. Just before we go into your yeah, yeah, let's mm-hmm. throw it over and ask her what she thinks. Do about you Justin. like him or not? So, <laughs> I I don't listen to his music. Um, oh, you know, I know oh. some of his. I know some of the hits. Like, you know, I recognize some of the radio hits. Or do we listen to radio anymore? No, but you know the 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 chart topping hits. Um, Interestingly, he has played an unusual and kind of refreshing role in the story of the fall of Hillsong, New York, involving former pastor Carl Lentz, yeah. who confessed to an extramarital affair in late 2020, I believe, um, and has since been out of public ministry. And Justin Bieber claimed Carl Lentz as his pastor and was he and his now wife. Haley Baldwin were involved in Hillsong, New York for several years. And I believe Carl even baptized Justin at some point when he was ready to kind of rededicate his life to Christ. So uh, after the fall of Carl Lentz, Justin said something in an interview with GQ that I thought was actually pretty profound that I will read to you now that I include in one of the final chapters of the book. Uh, Justin Bieber said, I think so many pastors put themselves on this pedestal and it's basically church can be surrounded around the man, the pastor, the guy. And it's like, this guy has this ultimate relationship with God that we all want, but we can't get because we're not this guy. That's not the reality though. The reality is every human being has the same access to God. And so we have Justin Bieber speaking in his own way to the priest, the reality of the priesthood of all believers, the folly of 
putting any particular person on a pedestal and thinking that they have more of a direct line to the Lord than any of us. And I'm not saying that there shouldn't be structures of some kind of authority or accountability in churches, but in our hearts and imaginations, putting somebody on a pedestal is dangerous. You know, it's it's dangerous for the person who is being put on a pedestal, but it's also dangerous for us uh, to attach to overly attach to somebody as super spiritual, superhuman, super impressive. Uh, because if they were to fall, you know, I think in a lot of these church scandal stories, you see people after the fact really grappling with the legitimate the legitimacy of the faith context and the faith that they had come to uh, to embrace because of this particular leader or celebrity figure. You know, if this person on one hand was capable of preaching the gospel in such a way that I responded to and, you know, decided to follow Jesus because of this person's preaching. And at the same time, they're doing immoral, duplicitous and or criminal things behind closed doors. Doesn't that, uh, isn't that a credibility problem for the gospel that they were preaching? Yeah. Oh, that was uh, so well said. Thanks, Caitlin. Mike, did you have a question that you were uh, busy getting into before the Justin Bieber reference well, entered the well, conversation? Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's connected to the, the last chapter uh, in your book, Caitlin. Um, mm-hmm. I just I wrote it down here in my notes. Um, it, this is a quote. Uh, Obscurity may very well be the spiritual discipline the American church needs to practice the most in the coming century. That uh, that to me seems so right and so the way of Jesus. Uh, mm-hmm. Historically, we have a name in the church for some of those people who practice the discipline of obscurity, and that would be the the martyrs of the church. How uh, how does obscurity, or you know, kind of in my words, martyrdom? How does that redisciple us from mm-hmm. from a culture of celebrity? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I am struck by, especially since we are in the season of Advent and Christmas, I am struck by the relative obscurity of Jesus's life. Of course, he arguably is the most famous person today, right? But we we mark time by his birth and death in the Western world. But nothing about his beginnings would have suggested this place of prominence, Um so just to reflect on the fact that God in Christ chose to came into the that God in Christ chose to come into the world through such humble unextraordinary even we might even say shameful ways you know we're thinking about God in the flesh in a trough and so and all sorts of other dimensions of Jesus's public ministry where of course he could have chosen to go up and to the right and he went lower into the left. Mm -hmm. This is obviously pointing all to the cross and the way of the cross. And so I wonder if when we're talking about obscurity and the, the discipline of obscurity, we're actually talking about the American church coming to be more comfortable with a theology of the cross and to, de-emphasize at the very least a theology of glory 
<laughs> um, thinking that what it means to be the church is to be successful by the world's metrics, to always be growing, to always be doing something spectacular and impressive, something that will draw crowds. And what if in that pursuit and in that imagination of discipleship, we're actually forgetting the centrality of the theology of the cross that is core to what we're doing. And so very practically, I don't know if that means, you know, if your church reaches a certain size, you intentionally decide to plant and have small, smaller local churches that have a local pastor that preaches week in and week out instead of doing the multi-site campus where the lead pastor's sermon is piped in <laughs> from the central campus. Um, I don't know if this is, you know, thinking about how you as a church uh, apportion your budget to be less oriented around production value and more around ministry to the poor and marginalized. I think this could look like so many different things in practice, but I think kind of recognizing that so much of our understanding of discipleship and church life is more about a theology of glory, whereas what would be truly countercultural and a countercultural and true Christian witness would to be to embrace a theology of the cross, which means going lower when the world goes higher, which means embracing suffering as a pathway to, um, to communion with Jesus, uh, all these things that make us uncomfortable, (laughs) right. But is actually the path to real life. Yes. Um, excellent. This really is a challenge to, uh, everybody listening, all, all pastors, all leaders, uh, eschew power, uh, choose the way of obscurity. Even, even saying that choose obscurity seems to be such a challenging thing to have to say, because everything around us, everything around us, especially if we're a leader of any kind in the church, is the opposite. Uh, we got to get big. We got to get famous. We got to let people know who we are. This is all for Jesus. And Caitlin's saying, choose obscurity as the way of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Did I have an amen out there? Amen. Amen. I, I'm just, I'm saying amen to the thing that you said, which was basically a summary of what I said. So that feels a exactly. little self worrying. <laughs> um, I have a question for for you two, because I think you both are probably much more acquainted with the life of the local church pastor and life in a local church than, than I am. It's just in terms of thinking about things that pastors and church leaders think about and worry about. Is some of this just truly we need to keep the doors open and in order to keep the doors open, we need to grow and we need to show growth and do the things that bring in more people. And we want to survive. We know we want to survive, (laughs) you know, we Mm -hmm. want to create a sustainable future. So yeah, maybe we play the platform game or the high production value worship game, but the ends justify the means because what we're ultimately hoping to do is to just, exist in the next five to 10 years. And that's a real anxiety. Hmm. Is that, is that true? (laughs) I, I, I do. Uh, I think it's true. Yeah. I go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. I thought, I thought, no, you, you, no, you're good. I, 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 (laughs) (laughs) after you, after you, um, 
Uh, and thanks for asking us a question. I don't know if we've ever had a guest ask us a question, so thanks. I do think the sustainability is a is a big driver behind um, trying to to raise your platform. One one thing I've appreciated about Dave and Cards on the Table, you know, Dave's the one who taught me this. A movement towards bivocational ministry um, has been really a gift for me because it takes off some of the pressure of having to gather a large amount of people to pay my income, to pay the heat, to pay the building. And historically church plants that Dave and I have both been part of have kind of give a, give a declining amount of money every year. Hey, 10, 10 grand for your first year, six grand in your next year. And mm. you'll be raising money as the declining grants are given out. So I, I do think some of the bivocational approach to ministry is really, at least for me, it's it's freed me up from some of that pressure of having to gather the most people as fast as I can. It's hmm. interesting. Yeah, and I, uh, I'll just add to that. I I see it's it's very contextual. Like I see uh, a lot of black churches in the in the city, uh, who who because they were able to get on say social media or broadcast uh, mediums we're able to keep church going during a very difficult time in COVID. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a sustaining feature that I don't think was celebrity seeking at all, or even platform building mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there have been plenty of places that have looked at uh, what they learned through COVID and the, and, and the various mediums as the means to expand their platform and keep things open mm-hmm. and uh, bring in more money. So, uh, but there is definitely some of that going on out there. Matter of fact, maybe a lot of it going on out there, but not everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I'll just say that um, we need to wrap this up. Uh, so uh, here's here's a here's a wrap up, Mike Moore. Uh, okay, back in my Robert Weber days, I would never claim to even like songs like this. But do you like the chorus? You are the Lord, the famous one, the famous one. I love that chorus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part, it seems well, pretty biblical, I guess. Well, Caitlin Beatty has now made that chorus legit because now, <laughs> because I've differentiated now fame from celebrity, mm-hmm. I can now sing that song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so I will admit, I don't know what song you're referring to off the top oh, of my no. head. Oh, um, no. Maybe I've been in too, to... too much of a high church context in my adult Caitlin, life. Do you want but... Mike Moore to sing it, uh, sing at least the first three, three sentences? Go ahead, Mike. Oh. It's a Chris Tomlin song. Um, it's oh, okay. called uh, okay. It's called It's called Famous One. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think I'm okay with that. I mean, <laughs> I guess you know, fame. You are the famous one. We are. We are speaking to the Lord's renown. All over the world. Great is your name in all the earth. Yes. This feels like a very biblical Psalms oriented claim. So anyways, uh, last, uh, here's something I really liked. It's actually uh, Caitlin quoting Andy Crouch. uh, And I'm going to leave everybody with this. Mm -hmm. Andy said, none of us need another fan. We Mm. need another friend. Page 172 of the book, Celebrities for Jesus by Caitlin Beatty, ladies and gentlemen, highly recommended. Final words from Caitlin before we close our time together. I will end with an anecdote. Now, I heard this from an acquaintance last week. 
So I haven't dug into verifying this. And as a journalist, I'm like very mindful of like I'm passing on this anecdote about someone famous. So, but, uh, so Eugene Peterson, obviously mega best-selling transliterator of the Bible. I think we had more than one copy of the message in my home growing up. Friends with Bono, like someone who, for all intents and purposes, we might have said, look, like you've reached this level. You probably don't need to pastor anymore. Like you can go on and just do the writing and speaking thing in the rest of your life and be very content. Of course, he remained the pastor of a, you know, a, a modestly sized Presbyterian church, his entire ministry, staying connected, staying proximate to those people through major life moments, you know, in their lives. And this is the anecdote that I thought was so powerful. Even his transliteration of the Bible arose from a need among his congregants in a small group or a youth group or something. He was getting the feedback, you know, I don't, this language is hard to follow. I find the Bible boring, essentially. And as a response to this pastoral need, he started transliterating the Bible. So even his writing of the message came from a relationship with actual people he was trying to minister to. He was not trying to become a best-selling author. And I just find that so, so refreshing and so rare, you know? And I mean, Eugene Peterson is Eugene Peterson because we recognize <laughs> he, he he lived out his vocational calling with such a, a rare integrity and character and rootedness. But I just love that story that even with the message, he was responding to the needs of his his neighbors and people in his church. So good. So good. Thanks to Caitlin Beatty for being with us on the show today. We highly recommend Celebrities for Jesus, how personas, platforms, and prophets are hurting the church. It's been a pleasure being with you all again. And so until next time, uh, we're bringing this to a close. It's Mike Moore and Dave Fitch. Till next time.